Let's listen to this text. Jesus is, we're still in Mark. This is the last week of Mark, which is the reading that we've had for this church year because the church year is about to finish. Next week is what we call the reign of Christ or Christ the King Sunday. And the week after is the first Sunday of Advent, which is the beginning of the church year as we prepare for the story of Christmas. So this is the last reading, because uh, next week we have a, a reading from John. This is the last week we get a reading from Mark. And Jesus and the disciples are still at the temple as they were last week. As he came out of the temple, one of, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another all will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this be and what will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. The apocalypse is upon us. Last Advent, which I'm sure you well remember, I don't, but somebody told me when I read it, we had the little apocalypse from the Gospel of Luke. This is what we call these bits uh, in the Gospels. And that was the first Sunday of Advent. And now the last Sunday, uh, of the uh, second to last Sunday of the church here, we get Mark's little apocalypse. If you've got the stomach for it, you could read the whole of Mark 13. It's a strange and bewildering set of statements, none of them exciting, all of them full of horror. We call it the little apocalypse because we call Revelation the big apocalypse. And we're used to the word apocalypse, but it doesn't mean what we think it means. At least it didn't mean that then. It doesn't mean disaster, nor is it a prediction of the future. So those people who are very keen on looking at the book of Revelation to tell that this is going to happen, then that's going to happen, and then this is going to happen... They're struggling because that's not the purpose of the text. Originally, the word means to uncover or to reveal or to disclose the truth of things as they really are. To experience things with fresh sight. In many ways, we're about to experience an apocalypse at Christmas time. Now, depending on how well you get on with your family, it will depend on how you want to interpret the meaning of the word. But we're going to do an uncovering. We're going to take things that look like one thing and we're going to tear the wrapping off them and it'll turn out to be 
socks. No, no, something really good that you really want, won't it? It's a present. So it's an unveiling. So it's not far away. Um, it, it, there's, but, so it is an apocalypse in that sense, but it's also an apocalypse in the sense that it's an unveiling of the truth. Hopefully it's an unveiling of the truth of the people that you love, your family or your friends, and a combining of those things that you, so you feel like we're revealing a truth which has always been there, that we love each other and that we want to celebrate together. Of course, in many families and in many relationships, it reveals a different kind of truth. This is the time of the year when uh, services that we support in the Uniting Church, part of our work of Lifeline, go, the, the calls go through the roof because it turns out that you can sort of pretend to play happy families until the tensions of Christmas come, a lack of money, a lack of communication, and things tear apart. So it can be an apocalypse, an opening up, a revealing in lots of different ways. And it will be this Christmas as it always is. It might also be a revealing of how much energy you think you have or how much patience you think you have. It might not be as much as you would like. And we're in another apocalypse, of course, the COP, that COP26 has revealed to us, uh, if we didn't already know it, uh, and that is that we've got a group of scientists forcing us to, trying to force us to, to pay attention to the truth. This is our reality. What we do about it has to respond to that. But we've still got people who are not willing to accept this is our reality. Somehow the scientists are all uh, either stupid or they're duped or they're lying. Uh, you know, all of these kinds of things that we hear because it's really, really hard to tell the truth. I would like the conspiracists to be right. I don't want to face the truth that the, uh, the, the, the IPPC report has just given us, which we have known for a decade. I don't want that to be true. I want it to be a lie. I want it to be overblown. I want it to be, well, they're stating it, it's worse. It's not really as bad as they're saying. They're just, they're doing it for effect. It's really, we, we can manage, that's what I want. But it's a different kind of truth, isn't it? It's a lie that I, I'm holding on to. Mark 13 is the truth about the current chaos of the world in which Jesus was living. If you, like me, grew up with Bibles that had pastel pictures of Jesus, beautiful coloured pastel pictures of Jesus and the disciples and the children, it looks like a bucolic world in which Jesus lived, a wonderful place to live. It was clean and it was tidy and it was gentle. That's not true at all. When Jesus says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, he's using apocalyptic language. There's a style, like we use poet, poetic language, and we know this is a poem, so you kind of use language differently. Apocalyptic writing did the same. It sort of projected into the, into the future, but what it was talking about all the time was what is happening now. Uh, apocalyptic writing in the, Bibles begins, uh, in the Bible begins with the book of Daniel, and there's lots of links between all of these writings. And it's clear that uh, Jesus and Mark have drawn from the book of Daniel in the work that they've done in chapter 13. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. It was happening all the time. At the moment of Jesus' birth, there was a massive revolt in Judea that the Romans had to put down just in the few years around Jesus' birth. In, in uh, 17 AD, so Jesus would have been a teenager of some, some age, we're not cl very clear, there was an enormous earthquake in, in Turkey, what we now call Turkey, 
where 20 cities just completely destroyed, changed the entire face of the region. In 62 AD, Pompeii. We all know that story. This was a chaotic time. Plus massive economic upheaval in Galilee where Jesus came from. A constant turning over. The rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer by the day in Galilee in Jesus' time. The money was being siphoned off the poor into the rich cities that Herod and the Romans were building on the coast. Uh, If you could get work at all, if Jesus was was a carpenter or a stonemason, we're not clear which of those he might have been from the translations. If he got work at all, it would have been almost slave labour work in the big cities that they were building for Herod and, for, and, and the, the people were being thrown off their land as retiring Roman troops were given land in, in Judea um, and throwing the peasants off. And of course, you remember in the latter part of when, when Mark is writing is the crazy time when Nero is the emperor of Rome. And they're trying to use language often in apocalyptic writing to kind of disguise what they're saying so they don't get into trouble. Most scholars will tell you that the Antichrist, who's mentioned in the book of Revelation, is Nero. That's who they were talking about. But they couldn't say it out loud because they would be killed. I mean, Nero was probably insane, many scholars believe, towards the end of his reign. Brother will betray brother, Jesus says. And father will betray a child and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. Around the time this was writing was the the year of the four emperors when there was just total chaos in Rome. Eventually Vespasian becomes emperor at the end of that year and manages to uh, bring in a a whole new dynasty of which his son Titus, who who destroys Jerusalem in AD 70, becomes the next emperor. And so there's a sense of stability, but it's crushing the people all the time. There's chaos. So when we read Mark 13, we have to read it as this is the life that Jesus had to live through. This is the life that Mark and his community were living with. So what are we, what are we going to learn from these strange texts? Well, firstly, obviously, is what we've just said about COP26. Face the truth. This is our reality. And the Mark 13 is, spells out in horrible detail the kinds of things that we can expect to be happening because they're already happening. So these things are going on already. We long for it not to be the case. You'll notice if you pay attention to um, what happened in uh, the early part of COVID, our politicians, particularly our Prime Minister, was very keen to play down how bad this was. It wasn't going to be that bad here. We would be on top of it. Now, I, I think he did that incorrectly. It's obvious in hindsight. I think he did it incorrectly at the time. But I understand why I did it because I wanted him to be right. I wanted this to have minimal impact. I wanted this to be something we could just get around. I wanted this not to be a sprint. I wanted us to not have to worry. And he was kind of, he was speaking out for all of us. And as I say, I don't think that's been very helpful at all. In fact, we're now quite confused by the messages we get from the federal government. But we think if we want it badly enough, we'll get it. But it's not that, that's not the way we face truth. We just say, this is the truth. And all of us are going to have to do that. All of us are doing that as we're getting older. Some of us are facing the kind of truth that says, the thing that I've got wrong with me now is not going to get better. 
This is what I'm, I have this illness or I, I'm at this age where these sorts of things don't fix themselves and there's not much doctors can do. This is my reality. Now I could pretend it's not or I could rail against the stupid doctors or somebody else or I could have courage and face this is my reality. That's what we have to do. It's true with our churches. The United Church is half the size it was 20 years ago. Nobody wants that to be true. It is true. We're an ageing congregation, like most congregations in South Australia and across the nation. We don't want it to be true. It is true. Does that mean everything's in despair? Well, it, it, it might. I think it doesn't, and I think there's lots of arguments for why it's not. But that's a truth that we have to get. Because Jesus kept saying, particularly in the Gospel of John, you will know the truth, and when you know the truth, it will set you free. Meaning the reverse, that if you live a constant sense of hopefulness, or because I really, really want it, it will happen, or because I ignore it, I won't have to deal with it, then what's the reverse of being free? Being bound, being locked up. So we've got to face it. We've got to be wary. Many people will come in my name saying I'm the one. They will deceive many people. Many people will come and have a single fix. All we need to do is, or the thing you must do is, there'll be many alternatives to the oneness, the unity that God calls us to. If we deal with those people in this way, if we stop giving benefits such as they are to people who are unemployed, they will get off their butts and get a job. If we stop bringing in immigrants, if we get rid of those people, if we blame the politicians for everything, if we... This is one thing we need to do. Or our current our crop of uh, federal government politicians want us to believe that technology will fix the environment for us. They might be right. They don't know. We don't know. But it's that longing for something that will do it. All we need to do is, or they're just beyond our reach, there's this great technological innovation which will change everything. It's like the, watching the Jetsons. We long for that. But look what large stones, what large buildings. Surely, look how smart we are. Look at the freaking Sphinx. We've got it all sorted. We've got to be wary. We've got to be truthful and wary. And if we are both those things, it may be possible to not give up on hope. Gutierrez, the UN General Secretary, said uh, on Friday that the, I, the, the possibility of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees is on life support. But later on he said, until the very last moment, hope should be maintained. And we get hope all through the scriptures. It's a strange thing to try and understand hope. You know the great quote from uh, 1 Corinthians 13, which we use in weddings and sometimes in funerals. And, and it, it, ends with, um, it ends with, I better quote it properly, and now faith, hope and love abide, these three, and the greatest of these is love. That might be true, but there's also hope. There's also faith. Hope is that thing that reminds us that if we look widely and we look hopefully, maybe it won't be the end of everything. Since we have such a great hope, 
Paul says elsewhere in Corinthians. Since we have such a great hope, we should act with boldness. Since we have such great hope, we should act with boldness. And hope is difficult. It's incredibly difficult if I'm the only one that's supposed to be hopeful all by myself. Because today, I'm not feeling so bad, so I'm quite hopeful. But tomorrow, three things will go wrong, and I'll feel very despairing about my situation, and I won't have much hope at all. I'm hoping on that tomorrow, if that's true, and if it's not tomorrow, it'll be the next day or the day after, sometime soon, I will despair. I'm hoping that will be the day that you're on top and you're the one carrying the hope. That's why we have to do it as community. That's why we have to keep telling each other this story. Let me finish with this. You know the, the very famous quote from Martin Luther King. The arc of the moral universe is long but it bends towards justice. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I would, I never understood how he knew that. Given the time he lived and given what happened to him at the end in 68. And then I did some reading about it and I discovered that it, he actually was paraphrasing a quote from much earlier from 1853 from an abolitionist um, universalist minister, a, a church minister who was involved in the abolition movement, um, Theodore Park, who in 1853 uh, was giving a sermon in which he said these words, and, and they're a bit more nuanced and they help me to, because it, the problem with Martin Luther King is he's up there. He's this like almost godlike figure and maybe he had and even when you read his letters, they still, they're so driven and so positive. But I don't live up there. I don't, I'm not that, I, I don't feel like I'm that morally strong as he is. But when I read this, I felt like I could find another way into it. So let me read what Theodore Park said in 1853 in one of his sermons. And you'll see where Martin Luther King, King gets his much shorter version. Parker said, Parker said, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The arc is a long one. My eye reaches but a little way. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by experience of sight. I can divine it by conscience and from what I can see, I am sure it bends towards justice. So be it.